So the uh, the session for today has to do with uh, you know the uh, a question that we heard a few times when we were going through uh, the lectures, uh, especially towards the end, the last few lectures that we had, uh, and those lectures had to do with the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and his message being the last messages to humankind. Uh, and being a universal and eternal message. So we had a few questions about this. We answered them, uh, I think, in uh, some level of detail. Uh, but we, we said that uh, if you guys are interested, we can certainly give more detail to this. So inshallah, today is going to consist of the first uh, uh, part of the answer to this. And we'll see, we may need either one more session or two more sessions to cover this, to uh, this topic in a little bit more uh, depth. So... Uh, the overview of the session today is going to be, first of all, just a quick recap of what we've seen until now. So from the beginning of the series, covering the big themes and the big, uh, uh, and the big headings and topics that we've covered until now. Uh, and then uh, once that's done, we'll introduce the uh, question that we're trying to answer. Uh, and, you know, there's a one way to see it as just a, a question, but the reality is that this is an objection to things that we've said until now. So, uh, you know, we're going to present it as an objection and to see what's the best way to answer this objection. And uh, as a reminder that for the time being, for today, the, the, uh, the answer that we're giving to this question or to this objection, we can consider it partial so that we need to uh, finish the topic in its entirety so that we have the the fuller or full answer to this question. Okay, so that's kind of the, the general structure for today's, uh, for today's lecture. So let's start with the recap. When we began this series, we said that this series has to do with uh, trying to have a good grasp, a good understanding of our belief system, of everything that we believe in as good Muslims and as good Shia. So we wanted to kind of build our belief system on a rational, reasonable, logical foundation and provide enough proofs so that we are actually convinced of the beliefs that we have. And so we began right from the beginning by trying to understand what is the need for religion and the link between the need for religion and human nature. And we spent a little bit of time on that topic, and then we linked it with a second topic, which is, what is the place of reason? What is the place of uh, knowledge with faith? Because this is an objection that we hear a lot. People who have faith, people who follow a religion, are people who kind of put their thinking aside, their logic aside, their reasoning aside, and they just follow blindly. So we had a couple of lectures to really try to understand the relationship between reason and knowledge and faith and to see are these compatible or are they contradictory like some people claim uh, and if they are compatible does it go even beyond and we said not only does our religion encourage reasoning and encourage knowledge our religion actually makes it necessary makes it obligatory it considers your faith lacking if it's not built on a foundation of knowledge and reason and then from there we went into the different proofs different arguments for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, existence of God. And we pre presented some of them uh, in a lot more detail. Some of them were a lot quicker. Uh, and then we spent a little bit of time in trying to understand this topic of materialism. So we said that there are basically two ways to look at the world today. Either you say some, either you are someone who looks at the world with God in the middle. So that's a theistic worldview. So it's a worldview with a God. So the moment you believe in a God, everything is going to change. And the moment you say there is no God, there is only matter and the material world that we know, then everything changes in another direction. So that means you're going to live your life differently. You're going to believe in different things for after death and so on and so forth. So we spent a little bit more time trying to understand when we say someone is a materialist, what do we mean exactly? And we looked at three specific very important topics that in today's world are very important related to you know the theistic worldview versus the materialist materialist or sometimes people say materialistic worldview 
So this is a worldview that believes that there's only matter and the material world and things that you can access empirically through your five senses. And the three big questions that we looked at was the beginning of existence as we know it, human beings, when we look at the world, which is the beginning of the universe. That's one, one, uh, one topic that we looked at in depth. A second one was the beginning of life itself, and we spent a few lectures on that. And then we spent time trying to understand, are human beings special or not? Is there something qualitatively different in human beings, or is it just a matter of quantity? Or is there a jump? Is there something that happened that now we have this different species that's not just an extension of the animal world? There's something different about human beings. So we spent a little bit of time talking about each one of these topics. And then we went through the attributes of Allah. Because we said sometimes there are people who believe that there is, uh, you know, there is uh, this, you know, greater entity, more powerful entity, but sometimes they refer to it as the universe. And they say God is, and the universe are the same thing. Or the laws of the universe are God, like we have in, uh, in certain thinkers who believe that, for instance. So you have the, the different, uh, uh, you know, versions of what people consider God. So we had to spend a little bit of time trying to understand when we mean God, when we say God, what do we mean exactly? So we have to look at the attributes of this God. And this is where, where we went into the details of, are we talking about a personal God, a God who knows that you exist, who knows that he exists, who will hear you if you pray to him? Or are we talking about a God that is not even aware? You know, it's just a series of say laws uh, or a force or an energy just out there. Uh, or is it more something personal? And then we went through specific attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the knowledge of Allah, the power of Allah, that Allah is, has life, you know, in the sense that we explained that he has wisdom. What do we mean when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Rabb, you know, has rububiyyah, lordship. What do we mean when Allah subhanahu, when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uluhiyyah, so he is, you know, he's the only one worthy of being worshipped and why? And what's the link between all of these uh, attributes? So we went through all of this, and then we spent a little bit of time specifically on one of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is al-adala, which is the justice of Allah. And this is because one of the biggest problems that people face in today's world with regards to believing in God is the problem of evil in the world. So we spent I, you know, quite a few lectures discussing this topic from all the different angles to see what we mean when we say, uh, evil in the world. What are the types of evil? And is it all the same when we say this is evil versus that is evil? Is it the same to consider, let's say, an earthquake evil in the same way as someone performing an act against another human being, an oppressive act, say? Are these two the same, same type of evil? And where does God fit into all of this? Where does divine justice fit into all of this? And then we spent an extension to this topic. We also spent a little bit of time trying to understand the place of test and tribulation and difficulties that we have to face as human beings in this world, right? So this was kind of the big theme that we discussed under the heading of the problem of evil in the world or divine justice. And with that, we kind of finished the topic that we refer to as, you know, Tawheed, uh, and usually Tawheed and Al-Adl are discussed together, Al-Ilahiyat, all of that topic. And we went into the second big theme in Aqaid, in the system of beliefs. And that is the, uh, the system of Nubuwa, or the worldview in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, guides humanity through a series of people, human beings that he sends to them. And so we said <clears throat> this topic is generally addressed under the heading of Nubuwa. And Nubuwa is split in two parts. One part is where we discuss the, the, the themes and the questions and the subjects related to all prophets, to all messengers, to all apostles. So this is general prophethood. So prophethood in the sense of what is a prophet? Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send them? And how do we know that someone is actually a prophet or not? And then we said there's also special or specific nubuwa. This is when we look at this specific nabi or that specific rasul. So where we look into the specifics of who are they? What was their specific miracle? Who were their people? Why was this their miracle? And so on and so forth. So under the general, the heading of general prophethood, we looked at what is our need for revelation? Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send revelation, send a communication to human beings in the first place? And 
what guarantee do we have that this revelation that we have is actually the same one that was sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to humanity? What's the nature of that revelation? And from there we went into, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a revelation, does it mean that if people don't believe, then that revelation is not effective? And we discussed this topic of the freedom of the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us so that we may choose as human beings, do I follow the guidance or do I reject the guidance? Of course, with consequences to each. Then we went into what are the main characteristics of prophets? Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he chooses a prophet, what is it that he's trying to accomplish? And we said they are role models and they are people who have to give us a guarantee that whatever we're getting from them is actually the same message that was communicated from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this brought us into the topic of infallibility, that of Isma. So we have to be sure that this person is not making stuff up, whether it's accidentally or voluntarily, intentionally. Making mistakes, not communicating the message as it should be communicated. I have to be able to trust that this is the message that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala really wanted to give to the people. And this person is not distorting the message accidentally or voluntarily, as we said. And then the big topic was, how do I prove, how do I know that this person is actually a prophet sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And we said there are a few ways. You may know the prophet yourself. You may have had prophecies about them from other prophets that you believe in. Or the main way for the majority of human beings is to look at their claim through their miracle. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them a sign that should make any human being using their logic understand that this person could only have been sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for guidance of humanity. And this is the proof of it, that he is able to uh, break away from the natural order of things through something that we call mu'jizah, the miracle, right? And so every prophet is going to be sent with a miracle that, is, uh, that corresponds to his time and to his people to best establish in the most effective way, the most uh, proper way that is going to be the most convincing to his people that he's actually sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with a message to them. And then we went in through some of the details of prophethood. So the different ranks of prophethood or people sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We explained the difference between a Nabi, a prophet, and a messenger, uh, a Rasul, Rasul ulil azm. So we said that there are some of them who are of a higher rank than others. And we explained the nature of prophet, uh, of infallibility and knowledge and divine, uh, the love towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We spent uh, you know, a lot of time on that. And then we finalized this topic by trying to understand the relationship that the prophets had with their people and trying to understand, so when are the conditions uh, fully met so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may decide that those people are you know, no longer going to be guided and therefore, for instance, there might be a divine punishment that ensues. And this allows us also to understand you know, human history and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manages societies, civilizations throughout human history. So we talked about all of this. And then the topic went into the specific prophethood of Prophet Muhammad We said this is an introductory course. We can't go into the, you know, the lives, the detailed lives of all the prophets yet. So we're going to the most uh, relevant one to us right now, which is Prophet Muhammad, our Prophet and inshallah, once you know all of this, all of these lectures are done, we will go back through the the, the stories of the prophets uh, in due time. And so, when we looked at the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu we wanted to look first at what are the proofs that he is actually a prophet. And we looked at all three proofs, as we said. So his character and the people who knew him, the prophecies about him from the past, and we looked at uh, you know his miracle, his claim to prophethood, which is his main miracle being the Holy Quran, and this opened the door to our discussion on the uh, miraculous nature of the Quran on one side. So what do we mean when we say the Quran is a mu'jiz and all the different you know, dimensions of the i'jaz, the miraculousness of the Holy Quran, and we presented a few of them. You know, There's the linguistic, there are the prophecies of the Quran, there are the scientific aspects of the Quran, 
There is the internal logic of the Holy Quran. There is the fact that it was brought at a certain time by a certain individual who should never have been able to bring about something like this to humanity and so on and so forth. So we talked about all of this. And then we also talked about the authenticity of the Holy Quran so that we are sure that this is the actual same book, the same communications that were given by Prophet Muhammad to his people that we are actually accessing today. And we compared between the history of the uh, putting together the compilation of the Holy Quran with regards to, let's say, the history of the Old and the New Testament, for instance. And uh, when we put all of that together, we saw that there's absolutely no comparison uh, in terms of the authenticity of the Holy Quran and uh, how reliable it is uh, and that it has been the case since the time that it was revealed and transcribed originally up to today. So with that, we kind of concluded the topic about the Holy Quran and then we finished off with two uh, main themes that are very interconnected, very related with each other. The first one being that this religion is a universal religion, meaning that the moment that it is revealed to humanity, when Allah subhanahu wa says everybody has to believe in it, it becomes universal. This is a religion that is applicable to all of humanity and an eternal religion. So it also applies to everyone who is not even born yet, who is yet to exist. So until the end of times, this is going to be the religion that humanity is uh, ordered or commanded or asked to follow. Okay, so this was the universality and the eternity of the religion. And of course, related to this is the topic of the khatm, the sealing of the prophethood. And we answered a number of objections related to all of this. So this is what we reached until now. And the next topic should be uh, now getting into what happens after the Holy Prophet. And our quick answer to this is going to be, inshallah, five, six lectures. We'll talk about the notion of imamah. What do we mean by imam? Why, why do we need imams? What is this belief that we have in imams? What are imams? How are they you know, chosen? How do we know who's the imam? Why do we believe in them? What are their characteristics? A little bit like the discussion that we had about prophethood in the sense that there is a general discussion about imam and there is a specific discussion that we could have, we're not going to have, uh, about each one of the imams. So we're going to talk only uh, about a couple of the imams in a little bit more detail. So that should be the next topic. That said, when we were going through the last few lectures, especially the ones that had to do with the universality and the eternity of Islam, we said we heard quite a few questions and they came back again and again about, uh, you know, if Islam is truly universal, if Islam is truly the religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants everyone to follow and to follow until the end of times, then why was it revealed in Arabic to these people, to these Arabs? And the way we have to look at this, and we'll explain that in a second, is that these in reality are two questions, or we can at least present them as two questions. One of them is, why was it revealed to those people specifically? And on the other side, it's why was it revealed in this language? Of course, these two questions are related, and so sometimes the question is asked more generally, but we have to break it down so that we give an accurate answer to this question. So basically this question is kind of an objection to when we're claiming the claim that Islam is a universal and eternal religion, the question arises that then why is it sent to only one group of people who speak one language and so it was revealed to them in that language. So the premise that we're going to start with, and so today we're trying to answer one half of that question, which is why was it sent to those people? The premise that we're starting with is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he sends a prophet to a group of people, the point of this message that is being sent is that those people understand the message to gain the maximum understanding of that message. So, what should go without saying is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reveal that message in the language that those people are going to understand the most. And so when we say it this way, it looks like it's something that's kind of like very simple. But this needs to be explained. This needs to be detailed in just a little bit more. And that's why we said, you know, we're breaking down the objection. So 
what we have presented until now as a system of belief has basically led us to the conclusion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to guide human beings because of the type of God that he is. He has chosen to guide his creatures and we are part of his creatures as human beings. So we need a special guidance that applies to us specifically. And the manner in which he has decided to guide us is to guide us through a system that we have referred to as prophethood. He could have guided us in a different way, but he decided to guide, to guide us through prophets. And we're not going to go through all of the details here, but we spent a lot of time explaining why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses the prophets that he has chosen, why they have certain characteristics. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to send prophets who are going to be role models to show human beings what you're actually able to achieve if you were to apply the teachings that I am giving you. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala were to send other than human beings, then we cannot use them. Human beings would have a, an excuse saying that, you know, you have sent angels and this is what has happened repeatedly with previous nations against their prophets and even with our holy prophet. When people either out of arrogance or, or they want to, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send, let's say angels to them with the message. Why is Allah sending a prophet who is only a human being as a guide to them? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers and you know, in multiple ways, but the short answer is, if you are to send a guide to human beings, in large part, this is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to guide them and guiding them not only in theory. So I'm not just going to dump on you the teachings. I'm actually going to send someone who is going to live them and apply them and who is going to go through the same difficulties that you go through as a human being. They have families. They have to deal with poverty and sickness and difficulties and oppression. They're not just someone who's sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who can just give you the teachings and leave this world and never face what a human being faces in this world, especially when they put themselves in those situations of trying to guide and reform society. So if you keep that in mind, this is where it begins. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends those people to guide the rest of humanity. From there, that guidance, so there is a teaching component, there is a practical component, but there's also the language that is spoken. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants that language to be the clearest to the, to the people receiving it. And the Holy Quran, inshallah, in the next lecture, will go through the verses of the Quran that speak to this, that clearly say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has never sent a prophet or a messenger to a people except in the language of those people, in their own language, so that they fully understand. And it says that again and again about the Holy Quran itself being sent to the people in the most clear language so that they understand it. So long story short, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen a system in which the people who are receiving this guidance are receiving it through a language. Now, if we understand this system, the question then should not be asked about first, the, the assumption should be, and it should be clear, that had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a prophet to any people, he would have sent them with forcibly a language for human beings to understand it. So the question first and foremost, is kind of half correct and half incorrect because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to have sent his prophet with a language, whether it's this one or another. And had it been another, then the question would also come back and it would not be specifically about why is it in Arabic? It could have been in Chinese. It could have been in uh, any other language. Okay, so the question would still arise in the same manner. Then we move to the next layer, which is, but in this case, the claim is, because other prophets were sent with other languages to their people, the difference is, as Muslims we believe, that there is a claim in Islam that it is universal and eternal. That there will no longer be any religion sent and everybody is to follow this religion. And therefore, you have to look at the specificity of this religion, including the fact that it was sent with a scripture in Arabic, which we will address next time, and to those people specifically. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send the Holy Prophet to those people? So it's not so much about those people as being, you know, Arab speaking people. It's why was he sent to those people specifically? That's half of the question. That's what we're trying to address today. And the second part is, and why did it have to be to Arab speakers? And this is what we're going to try to address the next time, inshallah, that we meet. Okay.
So let's begin. So the answer that we're going to give, first of all, a very quick introduction, is that it's extremely important to understand, especially if you look at human history. If you look at the, the whole of human history, you're going to see that in order to have a true influence over a group of people, and this is not easy to see when, it, when, some, when an event is happening. You have to see it, let's say, you know, centuries, generations, millennia after you know, the event happens to see was it actually as influential or not. And for something to be influential, there are certain criteria that have to be in place. So this brings us back to when something, we, if I want something to last throughout history, when I want something to be truly influential for the rest of time, then I have to do it in a certain way to meet certain criteria so that it actually lasts in time. So this highlights the importance of the first receiver, the, the context, the environment in which I'm going to put that event. So this is in general, and this is of course going to apply to any religion and specifically to Islam because our claim is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants it to last for all of the rest of human history. So for this to be the case, we have to spend a little bit of time to understand, so why was it sent to those people specifically? This is part of a divine plan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if he did it in this way, it's to ensure that this is going to be an everlasting religion. So he does it in a way, he takes into consideration factors and criteria and ingredients that if you put them together, is going to give you a religion that will last and will be extended and prolonged throughout history. And that will only gain strength and grow and it will not disappear, okay? Now, the second part of that answer, before we get into the answer, the, the introduction is, when we look at the Arabs, I am going to be relying on the classic version of history, which basically tells us that the Arabs were barbaric. This is before, the, the Arabs of the Jahiliya, pre-Islam Arabs. They were barbaric people. They were uncivilized, uneducated, illiterate. They were, in a lot of cases, they had very difficult lives, very difficult lifestyles, a very difficult, arid uh, environment in which they lived. They were, in a lot of cases, struggling with famine and poverty and so on and so forth. And they lived kind of simple lives in nature. Okay, they did not live the sophisticated lives of other, you know, cultures and civilizations. So as we said, this is a classic version of history. There are other versions of history, but let's use the one that is a classic one. So the question then becomes, why wouldn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose a more advanced civilization, a more complete and complex civilization, a more mature civilization, a more developed civilization to send his prophet to? Why would he choose these people living in that region at that time when they are in this state of depravity and you know, poverty and difficulty and uncivilization and uneducation and so on and so forth? That's the question. So what we're going to do, and you know, we're starting to lack time here, so maybe in a couple of minutes we'll send the, the new link. We're going to give 10 quick answers to this question. Why was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose to send his last prophet to those Arabs specifically in a way that we would think is going to make it last forever? Okay? Answer one. If someone really understands the state of those Arabs, and the extent to which they lived lives that lacked education, that lacked the knowledge that other civilizations had at that time. And then you compare the before and after. So before Islam and after Islam, anyone who is objective is going to appreciate the transformative power that Islam was able to have on those people. People in which, as we have said again and again, are not even. They didn't have a lot of people who knew how to read and write in the entire uh, Arabian Peninsula at that time. Knowledge was very, very low. And yet you fast forward a few generations and you see that the Islamic world and, you know, slash the Arab world at that time became the center of the 
world in terms of knowledge and education. They became the compendium where all of the knowledge of humanity was brought together into one place, translated all of it into Arabic, added much more to it than what was in existence to that time. And that became that transition that, you know, in the 16th and 17th century, Europeans started to take it and make of it their teachings and their curriculums that they use in the universities in every field of what we call the natural sciences and in history and, and, and that we have today in math and sciences and biology and so on and so forth. Okay, so this is the transformative power that this religion was able to play on uh, that people, those people who were considered to be, you know, uneducated, illiterate, uncivilized. So this is the first thing to show the greatness of this message, the greatness of those teachings. You'd simply need to look at the before and after. This would not be the case if you went to a civilization who was already considered advanced and super developed with a lot of scientists. You wouldn't be able to show truly how much progress has happened. Okay. So we basically gave the first answer to the question, uh, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose those people specifically? The second answer is that the Arabs of that time, because of the simplicity, because of the uh, type of life that they had, are going to be people who carry much less, let's call it cultural, ideological, religious baggage. In other words, their lives are a lot simpler. They have lives that do not require a very advanced, complicated, uh, uh, you know, complex way of understanding the world. As let's say you would find if you went to the Chinese culture or to the, uh, if you went to the, let's say the Romans or the Egyptians at that time, they all had much more complex lives. And because of this, the Arabs had less baggage to deal with. So when they are receiving the message, it's easier for them because you're undoing less than you would have to if you had a more complex culture. You're, you're starting, the, what you have to undo is a lot less than what those very complex cultures have to deal with. And you know, the example that we can give here is that if you went to uh, a group of people who have not really been given a lot of knowledge, a lot of spirituality, and so on and so forth, they're going to be a lot thirstier, a lot hungrier for that knowledge. This is the first time that they're really exposed to anything like this. Whereas if you went to the other civilizations where they've been exposed to this again and again, especially the ones who have received a lot of prophets, who have had scriptures, who have a lot of mythology and so on and so forth. In those cases, they're kind of a little bit more jaded. They've dealt with these things in the past. There's a lot less special for them in that. And... Uh, that's one side. And so they're less hungry, they're less thirsty for that type of knowledge. And on the other side, there is a lot more undoing because they already have all that ideological baggage and cultural baggage that they're carrying. And the example, as we said, is imagine if you're a room where you have a little bit of light and you turn on a light in there versus a room that is completely dark, there's, there's absolutely no knowledge there no exposure to anything from before, and you turn on a light, of course it's going to show a lot more because those people did not have anything to compare to. They're coming with nothing, and so they're a lot easier to uh, show the truth to. Okay, that's the second reason. The third and fourth reasons. If we look at those societies, unfortunately, sometimes as human beings, we are going to decide ourselves what advancement means, what maturity means, what development means. So you're going to say, for instance, for a society to be developed, they have to have this, 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 and that. But the truth is, those societies are not necessarily more or less developed, okay? It's whatever criteria we're saying that is going to mean development. And true development, that a society is actually truly more advanced than another one, may or may not match what we want to say is actually advancement. In a lot of cases, those societies where there is advancement also means that there's a lot more, there's a lot more what? There is a lot more corruption. There is a lot more perversion that has happened as a result of the advancement and the maturity of those societies with time. So as this has happened over time, they've also become a lot more 
perverted and corrupt as a society. And there's a lot more undoing that you have to do once again. Whereas those who have not been so developed, they haven't had the means, they haven't been exposed to all of this. You have to travel less of a distance to guide them because they happen to be more pure. Okay. It's like, as the example we're giving, if you're, you want to write on a page, if you take a blank page with nothing written on it, of course, it's going to be cleaner and easier to write on that page. than if you take a page where there is writing and you erase it, you have to remove what's already there and then write on it. Of course, it's going to be easier and nicer to have a blank page than to have a page where you have to remove before you put it. The fourth reason that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may have chosen the Arabs, those specific Arabs, those Arabs were known to be ruthless. They were known to be sexist. They did not recognize any rights to the female, to women and to girls and to, uh, you know, their mothers and their wives and so on and so forth. They were racist. They were extremely tribal. They had a very clear, distinct class system with super superiors and inferiors. They were extremely materialistic. They were selfish. They were arrogant. They dealt with a lot of things as animals would deal with them. Okay, those were kind of the main drivers for them in a lot of cases. And yet Islam was able to defeat that type of spirituality, if you want to call it that, that type of value system. And to take those people who were recognized for this by the world and to make of them human beings with strong values, with an ideology, with a worldview that everybody can recognize that whether you agree with it or not, now you're going to see the difference between the before and after. This was a huge transformation. So to the others who are looking at this, on the one side, it becomes a message that this is the strength of the, these teachings and the strength of this religion, that in this short period of time, it's able to transform those people and their values in this way. And also a warning, because those people should have been the most ruthless and the most sexist and the most racist and so on and so forth. And Islam was able to defeat all of this in them and transform them. So if other cultures do not consider themselves as ruthless as they are, as stubborn as they are, and so on and so forth, then what chance do they have in resisting this religion? Okay, there's a lot less of a distance to travel. The fifth reason is that, again, if you look at the same mentality that the Arabs had, but specifically when it comes to their violent nature, their wars and their duels and the importance of courage and, and, and. What we have in that society is that they used those traits. It has created a, had created a society that basically was run on oppression and tyranny. If you are the stronger one, you are going to vanquish and destroy and take rights and create rights for yourselves and crush anyone who resists. And if you are weak, you have no place in that society. Imagine now, so basically everybody is an enemy of everyone and the only thing that matters is your strength. If you have more strength, if you have more trickery, if you have more means, you can crush anyone else. That's the only system, that's the only value, that's the only ingredient and criterion that matters. Now, imagine that you are able to take all of these forces in those people, all of us, this energy in those people, and direct it towards the truth. So they keep their courage and they keep their, let's call it staunchness and strength and their courage and bravery that they're not uh, afraid to get into duels and wars and battles and to sacrifice everything and to have honor and dignity and so on and so forth. They are able to maintain all of this, but you're able to actually direct them towards the truth. Then in that case, and that's exactly what the Holy Prophet did, then in that case, you are going to have the best of the protectors and the supporters of that new system that you have put in, into them. And they become the most formidable of opponents to the others. So they become a lot more feared by the others. And the others are also going to recognize their strength. They're going to recognize their bravery and their courage and the ideological component that was missing before and that has been added now. And if you understand how the world works, you also know that, you know, in the real world, all the dynasties and all the empires are constantly warring over each other. So the moment that you have, you know, a civilization trying to overtake another civilization, 
what you're going to get is what is, is you know people who if you are vanquished you're going to follow uh, as the imam says you know people follow the religion of their kings so you're going to simply fold to whatever ideology has been imposed by you or where wherever the money is or 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 but now those people that the holy prophet taught and instructed and who are now believers in him they are going to be following his teachings and they are the ones who are staunchly applying whatever values they used to have. They are staunchly going to protect those values that were put in place by the Holy Prophet into them. This is very different than going to a society that is, let's say, a lot less barbaric and a lot less ruthless. Um, and so they accept those values, but they will not have the means, the ability to confront the others. They will be attacked with a lot more ease. Others will not see them as this formidable power. And so they will overtake them because of land, because of resources, because of whatever. And that religion will disappear with time. Okay? But in this case, because of who they were, this was not the case. Despite everything we said, the Arabs also had some positives. Some shining uh, glimpses of virtues and values that they carried within themselves. The Arabs, for instance, considered their word, when they gave their word, their word was sacred. The Arabs considered, you know, honor, having honor, having integrity and dignity, being someone who has generosity. So even if I am not generous myself, I recognize, the Arabs recognized generosity, recognized hospitality. It was very important for them that if someone comes, a foreigner, a stranger comes, that you show hospitality, that you greet them, and you deal with them with good manners and with generosity. These were sacred values that the Arabs had. The importance, which we cannot overestimate, the importance they gave to family ties and tribal ties, and the loyalties between them, and the importance that they had to help the poor and the weak, and not to hurt them because it was a sign of lacking dishonor, you know? This is dishonorous of you that you are going to go after someone who is poor or weak or so on and so forth. They're not a worthy opponent. So you don't deal them. The Holy Prophet was able, first of all, to recognize those positives in them and to correct those a little bit that needed to be corrected. So in one way, the Holy Prophet now had a foundation of values that he was able to use as the grounds for the rest of the beliefs and teachings that he was going to add to the values of the Arabs. That's one. And two, the Holy Prophet used those specific values that they carried. The Holy Prophet used the tribal connections and the family connections that they had in the most strategic way so that he can spread the message and communicate the message. He did the same thing with the importance they gave to honor and integrity and dignity or the importance of their word and their allegiance and their loyalties. He used all of that to spread his religion to the most. So it was a strategic use of all of this. So this is how the Holy Prophet also used the values, the positives that we find in the Arabs in, uh, as they existed in the pre-Islamic Arabs to spread the message of Islam. And one more reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may have chosen these people to be the initial recipients of this message. The seventh answer, as we said, these were people who were extremely impatient, very stubborn, very greedy, very arrogant, people who uh, display a lot of aggression and violence. They do not shy away from fighting each other, disagreeing and doing something when they, you know, uh, are, they have a disagreement with someone, they do something about it that may go all the way to killing them. Okay. This means that this was a very confrontational environment. And if you have that kind of environment, it's not easy. It's not as easy as simply saying, I believe. It means that you're in an environment where you're constantly put to the test. It means that you're in an environment where your beliefs have to quickly translate into actions. And if you have fake intentions, sooner or later, you're going to be exposed. Because the confrontations are real. The sacrifices are real. The disputes and the disagreements are real. It's a matter of life and death. It's a difficult life. So the teachings of Islam itself are tested which may not be the case if you live in a much easier environment. That's one. The teachings of Islam are put to the test. Secondly, 
the intentions and the true beliefs of those who claim to be followers of the Prophet are also put to the test, which means it's easier to expose a hypocrite and easier to recognize a true believer because there's constantly a situation where you are able to really show your true intentions and your true belief or situations where you're going to fail and not be able to display those. Constantly, you are exposed and tested. Okay? So that's another reason. The eighth reason. If we look at the history of the prophets as we see it in the Holy Quran, we see that the Holy Quran gives us a general plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in which he says he's always going to go to those who are deprived and those who are weak and miserable on this planet and turn things and change th things so that in the end, they are the ones who are going to rule and they are the ones who are going to be mighty and powerful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he does this first and foremost to show his power to show that truly he is the one in control. As much as you think that your actions are going to be the end result that you'd like, no, it's in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, that's one. Two, it's going to show how this world works, the philosophy of history, as we've called it a few times, and how societies work, which societies go up and which societies decline. Okay, and it's going to be, so there are lessons to be taken from that in itself. And it's also going to be a test so that those who are deprived and weak and living in oppressive environments for years or generations or centuries sometimes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, okay, I'm going to flip the equation and I'm going to put you in power to see are you going to be as corrupt as them or are you really going to be better? When you now have the power and the means, are you going to be sincere? Are you going to be objective? Are you going to take care of the weak and the pure and the... Uh, the poor and the minorities and, 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 or are you going to behave in the same way as your oppressors? Did? Okay, so it's a test and it's also a way to explain the true power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which always works in mysterious ways. The ninth reason, in a little bit more detail, this one is a little bit more subtle. We look at the story of Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam. The Holy Quran tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, to go into this barren land, Mecca, and to leave his wife and his son, who was just born, Ismail salam, and he leaves them there, and he prays for them. And then you start fast forwarding through the generations and through the centuries, and now you have the Arabs who are living in the same place. And you remember how Prophet Ibrahim salam, prayed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may protect his progeny and make them ones who are going to remain in this land and bring people to them and make them like them and so on and so forth and keep his name alive. And then suddenly you look at what has happened to Mecca where the Holy Prophet rises centuries, centuries, millennia later. And then you start thinking about the divine planning. You can see a microcosm, a smaller version of this, let's say when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks to Prophet Musa alayhi salam, when finally he becomes a prophet and he explains to him how he has managed his life. He tells him, I have made you so that you are for me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is planning or engineering this world in a certain way to make it reach certain end results, certain outcomes. This is part of a bigger divine plan that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would send this prophet from the progeny of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, who thousands of years before prayed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would send from that progeny through Ismail السلام, and those people who are going to live there, he's going to send that prophet who is going to guide people and purify people and make them return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, so let's go into three quick points here. The first one is, there is a direct link between the teachings of the Holy Prophet and Islam to those Arabs and Ibrahim And we know that if there were any Hanafis followers of Ibrahim left on earth, they would have been in that group of Arabs living in Mecca. And this reveals a link that maybe today we take for granted. We say all religions are the same. They all come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well, maybe if it had not been sent through that Prophet, sent to the Arabs who were 
who considered themselves as being the progeny of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, that link to the all of the Abrahamic faiths as they call them would not have been clear would not have been exposed so that today everybody says these are the Abrahamic faiths they all stem from the same root they all have the same teachings and this is the one the unity of guidance and divine religion that's one point a second point is that the fact that those Arabs came from Prophet Ibrahim السلام, and that there are still Hanafis living among them means that there are leftovers from the true teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through Prophet Ibrahim in those people. Which means that there are leftovers for the Holy Prophet to work with and make those people realize that this is the way to go back to the true teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you look at things like the sacredness that the Arabs still had for Mecca, that they still performed the pilgrimage around the Kaaba, for instance, in their own way, and it was a complete distortion. But the remnants were still there, the seeds were still there for the Holy Prophet to work with them. And the third point is that, as we've explained many times before, the Arabs really looked up to the Ahlul Kitab. They considered Ahlul Kitab as being the ones who carried knowledge, who, who had a scripture, who were able to read and write, who had the wealth, who had an organized system. They looked up to them for everything. So when the people of the book, Ahlul Kitab, started recognizing and accepting the claim of the Holy Prophet that he is a prophet because they are saying that he is mentioned in their scriptures, they recognize that their prophecies clearly state from their own prophets that this is the man that they are to follow at the end of times, that he is going to be the prophet sent at the end of times. This meant for the Arabs of that time, that the people that they're looking up to are accepting this religion. So who are we to reject it? And they started entering into Islam as well. And many of those who entered into Islam were Jews and Christians. And then the rest of the Arabs, the pagans and others who were entering into Islam based on the fact that they were seeing how the Ahlul Kitab are entering into Islam. And of course, the Arabs were very proud of the fact that they now had their own prophet. They did not have to go to the prophet of the Jews or the Christians. They had their own prophet, which would not have been the case had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the holy prophet in a group of people who had received a prophet before. So these are all factors that make those people want to enter into this religion more. And the last answer that we want to give, the 10th answer, and it's a complex one, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose the Arabs specifically to receive this message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the last of religions, is this combination because it's, they're all connected, those aspects, the political reality, the social reality, and the economic reality of the Arabs of the Jahili, of pre-Islam. So, as we've said, they lived in a tribal system. A tribal system that could have been used by the Holy Prophet as it was, so that if the Holy Prophet goes and talks to the chiefs of a tribe and the chiefs make a decision, everybody is going to follow those chiefs out of their loyalty and allegiance. Which means I don't need to go and guide 10,000 people. I can go and guide five people and they are going to communicate that message for me. So there's a strength and a weakness to the tribal system. But this is the strength that the Holy Prophet played on to make sure that his message gets spread as quickly as possible. So... The Holy Prophet also used alliances and allegiances. And this was very important for tribes, for families, for people to create an alliance together. The Holy Prophet really used and leveraged those alliances to protect himself, to protect his family, to protect the believers, to protect the faith. This would not have been the case in other cultures where there was not such a strong emphasis on alliances and allegiances. Lack of political unity. The Arabs did not have a king. The Arabs did not have an empire. The Arabs did not have a country or a nation like we find elsewhere. Which means that there was, in today's jargon, we would say there's a political vacuum. You have a country without a leader. Well, this cannot be said of others. If you went to another nation and you tried to reach the top and to lead and reform it from the top, it's an uphill battle to remove whoever is there and those elites. Whereas in the Arabs, there is, it's decentralized. There are heads of tribes. The tribes are constantly in conflict with each other, but they keep each other in check. So the Holy Prophet was able to leverage that. And finally, he became the one that was able to unite all the Arabs, even politically, but also ideologically, militarily, economically, and so on and so forth.
If you look at the Arabs living pre-Islamically, you are going to see that a very large portion of them were actually living in poverty, in misery, which means that they were looking for a way to get out of that condition. So had the Holy Prophet been sent to another society where there is a lot more wealth, for instance, you have a lot less people inclined, even for materialist reasons, to enter into this religion. The Arabs constituted their, their reality, their geostrategic position, meant that they were not really a reason, there was not a reason for other empires like the Persians or the Romans to attack them. It was difficult, it was a barren land, they could protect themselves well, and they could not really be attacked easily. And they were positioned centrally, so they could attack anyone a lot more easily than they would be attacked. Okay? And then this also applies economically. All the roots of the markets and the transactions and the business world went through the Arabs, which means that in addition to the money flowing through them, they also had access to the cultures and the languages and the politics of others. And this is why the Holy Prophet was able to use this, and this is how he was able to spread his faith and his message even before sending people officially to those other areas. You have areas like Iraq or Yemen, they entered into Islam by the hundreds or the thousands before the Holy Prophet sent anyone because specifically of those types of interactions that were happening in the marketplace, okay? The Arabs were also living very close to nature. They lived a simple life. They did not live in complex cities, let's say like you would find in ancient Greece or in uh, you know, the Roman Empire or the Chinese Empire. These were people who lived very closely to nature, which means they're very in tune with their own natures and the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in nature. The Prophet has less work to, to do to bring them back to that. Then, they led much simpler lives, which means that in order to be able to gain their sustenance, to earn their livelihood, they didn't have to work all the time and travel all the time. And No, it was a simpler life, which means that the Holy Prophet could use them and make them dedicate more of their time and energy to understanding this religion and spreading this religion. And finally, these were people who did not live the most stable of lives. A lot of them were nomads. A lot of them were quick to move from one place to another because, as we said, their lives are difficult and they don't really have a reason to stay put in one place and not move. They were not farmers, let's say. They were not very, very strong on agriculture. So it was easy for them to say, okay, I will follow the Holy Prophet. If he asks me to go somewhere, I will go somewhere and I will restart my life there. It's not the end of the world. As you would have, let's say, in today's world or in the empires where it was a much more complex and stable life, uprooting yourself becomes a lot more difficult. So with this, inshallah, we have covered some of the reasons. We have given 10 in different uh, you know, levels of detail. 10 reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have chosen the Arabs, that group of people specifically, to be the recipients of the final message. So that they are the ones who play the crucial role of taking that message and communicating it to the rest of humanity until the end of times. Had it not been for those factors, most likely this religion would not have been able to remain in place based on material ingredients, based on material factors. Okay? Of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can use the miraculous way, but he does not. So based on the material means and factors that we know of, we can now understand why, some of the reasons why, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may have chosen those people specifically to be the recipients of the final message that was going to be sent to humanity. And through those people, that message was going to be accepted and then communicated to those first generations and then to the millennia of human beings who will come afterwards. Inshallah, the next time we meet, we are going to go through the other part of the question or the objection, which is, so why specifically the Arabic language? Brothers, sisters, anyone who is following, I apologize that uh, this is now the time for prayer. So I don't think we really have any time for a lot of questions. Uh, so inshallah, maybe next time, if you have anything, do not hesitate to send any questions, concerns that you may have.
and we can uh, obviously address those before starting, depending on how relevant they are. Or if you have specific, uh, you know, questions you'd like to address, uh, and they're more personal outside the topic, then don't hesitate to send them either on the group or to myself, and I will deal with them. May Allah subhanahu wa taala accept all of your deeds, and inshallah, we see each other uh, next week at the next time at the same time, inshallah. Okay, see you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum, and keep me in your prayers. Bi amanah.